Hello, folks. In this episode, I got to interview Jordan Smith. Jordan Smith is a former captain of mine, and he's had some really neat adventures over his long sailing career. He was with me on the Hawaiian Chieftain. We talk about that tall ship and our time there, but we also talk about other times in his career when he was on other tall ships, on racing boats, on yacht boats, out in Key West, doing booze cruises, that kind of thing. Our conversation goes all over the place. There's little gems of leadership, little sailing bits of knowledge here and there. We also geek out on history a tiny bit, talk about COVID for the first time. I don't think I've actually done an interview where we talk about directly about COVID and kind of what it's done to our careers and to the Tall Street community in general. I, I hope you don't get too lost. We do kind of use our tall ship jargon quite a bit and fluently. And uh, neither of us hesitates in, in that regard. But it shouldn't be that hard to understand if you have a sailing background. All right, without further ado, here is Jordan Smith. How you been? Good, good. Um, sort of had my head down for a while during the pandemic. You know, as you're well aware, um, large parts of our work world shut down completely and others were running on reduced capacity and things like that. In addition to that, my significant other, um, Dorothy, um, is a uh, type 1 diabetic, and so she was at additional risk, and so we were additionally careful. Um, oh, my gosh. So I just didn't do a heck of a lot for the last little while, but... Um, I've been, I, I worked some in Portland, Maine this summer, uh, the, you know, the Bagheera and Wendemi and that, those people. And, um, I'm about to go to St. Lucia to work for Island Windjammers. They have this 105 foot thing they want me to run for a bit. So just getting back into the swing of working more or less slowly sort of landed on the notion that Doing, doing solely tall ships is probably a thing of the past. I've, I've sort of reached the conclusion I'd rather have like three or four little jobs rather than one big one, um, which I think I mentioned in our earlier conversation. Yeah, so, you know, plugging along. Um, I had weight loss surgery about a year and a half ago. I've lost 115 pounds. I was going to say, I, I so. could tell from your pictures and just looking at you now, like you look very different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's less than me. Yeah, and it was it was probably one of the better decisions I've ever made in life. I mean, wow, old little nagging things that you get when you're get into your upper forties, like aching joints and arthritis and slightly high blood pressure and stuff, all gone. You know, wow. uh, just from that. Yeah, amazing. Mm -hmm. well, that's awesome. Yeah, I had a I had a house old housemate who she had gotten. Uh, she she had she was very very obese and she had gotten the surgery and it was crazy the change in in her personality so like i called her i found out her mom had died and so i called her up and i had never heard her so happy and it had nothing to do with her mother obviously she was sad her mom died they, they loved each other but like her entire personality had changed so much that even though her mom had just died she sounded happier than i'd ever heard her like that's how much yeah. her baseline changed and yeah. it, was, it was crazy. And it was like this cycle of, you know, she had the downward spiral of you, know, you get bigger, you get depressed, you eat more kind of thing. And then once she started losing the weight, she had the upward spiral of, oh, now I can walk again. Oh, oh now I can jog. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, now I can run. 
Yeah, like last summer, you know, I, w- I hadn't even lost all the weight yet, but I had lost 50 or 60 pounds. And uh, Dorothy and I were, we had our, we have a 31 foot cruising boat and um, we were just cruising around the coast of Maine, went to um, Bar Harbor and um, I climbed Cadillac Mountain, you know, and, and like, you know, right from the waterfront all the way up to the top, all the way back. And I just was thinking to myself the whole way along, like when I got back, yeah, my feet hurt, but a year previous to that, I would have been blowing snot bubbles after 20 minutes. You know what I mean? And, and just being able to exert yourself, it, it, it releases all these endorphins and it makes you feel good and makes you want to do it more. Like you say, it's the upward spiral thing, you know? That's great. Um, <laughs> That's really cool. I'll tell you what, when, uh, when we knew each other or when we met each other, that was kind of like, that was kind of my low point <laughs> of, of the downward mm-hmm. spiral. I think it's certainly, Socially, it was I was uh, going through. I don't know. It, it was it was rough. It was like I had a, a couple good wake up calls for sure. Um, right on on that uh, that cruise. I, I, I've needed a couple. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. You were well, captain. Like, you were captain. I was chief mate. Yeah. And uh, and we had a, a great crew. I mean, I remember. Uh, yeah, we had we had several good crew members for sure. Um, yeah. our, our, and I think we talked about Palio the last time. <laughs> yeah. I've run into him since, uh, when he was on Draken. Yeah. Um, on the great. Yeah. I, I hope to interview him cause he is such a character and he has that wonderful Spanish accent that just, yeah. <laughs> we'll get yeah. a million likes. So yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that was, it was fun. I mean, for me, um, I found a pretty stark cultural difference between the east and west coasts, coasts, tall ship wise, or maybe it was Grace Harbor in particular. I was, you know, it was just a, it was very different. Yeah. Um, uh, I was probably used to like the little more, slightly more rough around the edges, rough and tumble, New England schooner kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was, it was different, you know, and I'm, you know, it's like, I uh, I knew how to handle the ship, and people I think appreciated that, but they probably didn't appreciate some of the other stuff. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did appreciate your boat handling skills. That was that was pretty impressive. Yeah, because we were on Chieftain. Yeah, Hawaiian yeah. Chieftain. And you know she's getting fixed up now. Yeah, she has a new owner. Yep. Uh, I, I she needs like a substantial amount of replating, from what I heard. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, uh, I wish them well. I mean, I, like, it, it just seemed crazy to me when I heard that she was basically totaled, um, <laughs> by, you know, um, and, uh, yeah, I'm glad someone's bringing her back to life. That's good news. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, so let's, uh, let, let's talk about your, your boat handling skills. So where did, where did you get most of your boat handling skills? it's the old, how do you get to Carnegie hall? You know, practice, man. Practice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I started off in sailing dinghies when I was like four years old and, yeah. um, earlier in life, you know, my, the, 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 the scope of my career, quote unquote career, such as it, such as it is, is, um, grew up sailing, a lot of racing, which breeds a lot of precision in that kind of thing. You need to be able to put, 
the boat within six inches of where you want it, Mm -hmm. you know, and precision making turns, rate of turn, like all all that stuff, slowing down, speeding up, like, you know, anything that you can imagine that you have to do with a boat sailing backwards, you, you know, it's all very necessary. And my professional life before I got into tall ships was, more or less as a semi-professional racing sailor. I worked as a sailmaker. I ran a rigging shop and there was a lot of, um, both with my own boats and as customer service on other people's boats, a lot of racing. And, um, so, you know, just decades of that really. And, um, a lot of, you know, occasional breaks to take my own boats, ocean voyaging and stuff like that. And then, Around, I guess it was 2010 or 11 or something like that. I, I was getting into my upper 30s. This is like right before we met, a couple of years before we met. And um, uh, I kept finding that the boats, you know, racing boat design has progressed like crazy in the last 20 years. And the boats kept getting lighter and lighter and lighter and faster and faster. And I kept getting older and older and more and more banked up, right? And so... <laughs> It was like, okay, it's uh, time to shift my field a little here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, yeah, I guess my first tall ship job was with Appledore 5. And, um, you know, and I sailed on traditional rigs all my life. So none of that was entirely alien to me. There was there was some differences to pick up. But but, um, you know, when you spend that much time just devoted to the physics of it, it's easier to sort of plug and play in, you know, different boats of different weights and different characteristics and things like that. Okay. So, so you had some like schooner experience prior or, or you, you said tradition, you said traditional rigs. Yeah. Traditional rigs. I mean, you know, cat boats and uh, French sloops. And oh, okay. So, so these are, these are all one masted uh, vessels that are, that are small then. Right. Yeah much yeah okay and you know i mean i handled large boats before i got into tall ships i handled large boats that um had long yeah it was just a matter of putting all the different pieces together right yeah one of the boats i owned when i was voyaging was a uh a 53 foot double-ended steel catch uh with a long keel and so there's your long keel part how there's how (laughs) those handle right and i'd sailed schooners before so it's like okay that's how a schooner rig works and I had a beetle cat when I was a kid. Okay, that's how a gaff rig works. So it's nice. just a matter of just storing it all, you know. That's cool. It's funny because yeah, I kind I kind of came at it from from the op, like the polar opposite thing. So I only started on tall ships. That was my first experience. Yeah. And then over the years, I got more experience on smaller vessels. And and I mean, you know, like thirty. Right. I remember the first time. Uh, I was sailing a laser and a 36 foot little yacht boat and stuff. But like, like I found like, yeah, like you said, you just kind of compartmentalize all the different information. All of a sudden, like you you just know how to do it. Like even the the Hobie cat, I remember everyone was like, Oh, you're going on a Hobie cat. It's so difficult to tack that boat. And like when, when I started going up into the wind and realized, Oh, we're going backwards. All right. Like, yeah, it's like back your head, so shift your helm. And now I'm sailing backwards the correct direction. I need to be turning, and now that caught the wind, and we go. Like, like it was, I, I was able to do it without any instruction, without any prior knowledge. Well, no, that's not true. I had a lot of prior knowledge, but no direct knowledge with the Hobie Cat. Yeah. And so I found it yeah. does translate if you figure out kind of like you said the physics of it. So that's neat to know that yeah. it goes 
both ways, you know, that, that you can come from a larger tall ship and sail smaller boats and vice versa with, you know, with, it's with true. Some the training. difference that I found, and this may, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, we've both been around the block in the tall ship world. And I would say that the difficulty there is many people don't begin to learn that physics side of it, like, you know, A plus B equals C kind of stuff until they get themselves in a position in the command structure, right? A deckhand probably has a pretty hard time, you know, if you're a deckhand for a couple of years and that's all the sailing you've done, it, it just seems like, I think it's getting better, but, but certainly I came in like sort of at the tail end of it where, you know, everyone, everyone in command positions played that stuff very close to their chest. <laughs> it wasn't real good at, at, at involving the deckhands and that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, once you're a watch officer and you're, and you're handling the ship some, then yeah, then it translates both ways. But, but, um, but, you know, for an entry level person saying, I want to get on a tall ship and learn how to sail. It's like, boy, get in a sunfish and learn how to sail. Mm. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I definitely think it, it depends on the boat too. But uh, there's there's a lot to be yeah. said about hopping on a boat and just listening, learning, you know, um, obeying orders, following orders quickly, you know, with alacrity and all yeah. that. Uh, yep. But that said, like, like I know as a captain, I, well, first of all, I wonder if some of it isn't just that fear of like I don't want to lose my job. <laughs> I tell everybody how to do this. Uh, there might be you know some of that that worry. I don't know. I don't know if that's that, that. I never had that problem because I'd seen enough captains that couldn't drive boats and that could where I'm like, Oh man, like if I can just not crash the boat, I'll be, uh, I'll be fine. I think some of that. And you know, like I worked some with, uh, Jan miles on pride of Baltimore and he obviously goes back way further than any of us. Mm -hmm. And he says, he says it's like this, like sort of leftover cultural thing and not just in tall ships in, in, in sort of merchant marine generally um, uh, to the extent that they came up with this course, which I took from my license upgrade called bridge resource management. And yeah. it essentially is teaching a captain how to be a team player, like, like, <laughs> like cut it out with this, like, you know, I'm God emperor shit and just use your people, you know? Uh, and that's what the course is about. Um, it's pretty interesting course actually. Um, well, so, the, yeah. yeah, the reality is, uh, you know, the, the I mean, as, as captain, like my, basically my first job when I get on a boat, once I figured out how it handles, you know, it, then, then it's like, OK, now I'm training the mate how to drive the boat and then I'll train another person. Like because if, if I get hit on the head, you know, or get yeah. a heart attack or, or die or whatever, like somebody else needs to take over and at least be able to get the boat back in, in pretty much all conditions. So, yeah. 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 I mean, for that reason alone, it's good to, to train folks. But but as far as I I do wonder if some of it as well, you know, some of it could be ego and fear of losing one's job. If you train somebody who's better than you, bam, you're out of a job. I don't it doesn't really seem to work that way in real life. But um, no. the, the other concern, too, of course, is you, you don't want too many chiefs like like you just people need to be trained as deckhands. You know, there's a time to talk about stuff and a time to argue. Uh, and discuss, yeah. um, but 
but boy, it's not in the heat of the moment. Like, like, like the only thing you should be pointing out is safety concerns, but not telling yeah. anybody. You know, I always tell my deckhands, I'm like, look, give me the information. Just tell me the information. Um, never, ever, ever give me something that sounds like an order. And I said, it's not for me. It's not for me at all. I, I actually would listen to your order if it made sense. Uh, but there, I've met captains where their ego literally will not – they will do the opposite of what that person suggested just to – just because their ego can't handle it. And they'll, they'll get the boat into an accident or, and it's crazy. I've seen it with my own eyes. So, yeah. so it's, that's – so that's one of those things where like, yeah, I always tell the deckhands, like make sure – just give more information and, and feel free to elaborate. You know, it's like, oh, we're, we're closing on that piling. Oh, piling's 10 feet away. At this right. speed, you know, we're going to hit. Like, you know, it's like you can keep giving the information without telling them, you need to turn the boat or turn the engine on or do something, you know, so. I have a good story that, that relates to this. Uh, um, uh, on Pride, uh, this was 20, it's either 16 or 17, I can't remember. It was part of the Tall Ship Challenge thing. We did a race from Charleston to Bermuda. And um, it blew like absolute stink the entire time. It blew like 25 to 35 knots on like a broad reach angle the entire time. So, I mean, I had a, you know, we had a ball, but we beat the hell out of ourselves and the boat. Um, you know, pride has the history uh, well, well before I became involved with her of wanting to go fast and wanting to win the races and all that stuff. And, <laughs> I mean, honestly, that's part of why they hired me. So, you know, we're rolling along, we're going like 13 knots or something like that. I'm down below. Uh, it was, I believe we we're, I think we had cleared the Gulf Stream, which is actually makes this a little strange. But it was just one of those things, a freak wave. And, um, and you know, whoever was at the helm got a little disoriented, caught the wave in the wrong angle. And we took a big roll, you know, such that we rolled the cap rail under. Oh, wow. And, and dipped the end of the boom, um, the main boom, you know, which on that vessel sticks way out past the transom, of course. Yeah. And... And the force of the main boom dipping in the water broke the Perel beads and dragged the boom jaws off of the mast oh. and broke five of the mast tubes, like ping, 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 right? Yeah. And then, and then the friggin' thing just, of course, just, you know, it wants to go forward, right? And so it's, it's unshipped. It's banging around and everything. I'm like, I'm up on deck pretty quickly and, just you know, so folks, just so folks listening know, how big is the main boom? Like, what's the approximate diameter of this giant log? Okay, the approximate diameter. Let me see. I'm hell. It's. I mean, it's more than twelve inches. It might be on the on the on the roughly eighteen inches in diameter. I'm guessing, uh, maybe even a little more than that. And what is it? It's got to be. At least fifty feet long. I wow. mean, it might be longer than that. So, so this is a uh, proper tree. I mean, just so folks understand, this is not like this is a tree. Yeah, yes, like yep. it, it can it can destroy, <laughs> it can crush people like already, little. Yeah. I don't know, it little eggshells. A couple of thousand pounds. Yeah. Wow. Um, and and it's you know, so it's the middle of the night. So you know, we just got to get this damn thing down. And, and, and so for, we just get – it took a little like fiddling to get it get, – just get the main down, right? And, you know, even without the main, with just the uh, the foresail, the headsails, and the square topsail, we're still doing 11 knots. And um, 
So we're like, okay, all right, just right, let's just lash it down. We need daylight to really fix this. And um, so the next day, we're like, okay, how are we going to get the main boom back on? One, we're still in heavy seas. It's still blowing hard, you know. And Jeff Crosby, who's an awesome guy, he's still with the ship. He's the he was chief mate for me on that on that um, trip. You know, he and I we were just putting our heads together, and we're and our and our bosun uh, Kelsey, and we're we're just sort of just coming up with basically enough purchase to to crank the boom half far enough to get the jaws back on and and you know okay what are we going to do for mast hoops we busted all the mast hoops i'm like well we have some dyneema and we have perel beads so we could remake those and and <laughs> you know we we and so we just you know we it took a little doing but we put it all back together and we we reset the main after i don't know it took a couple hours i suppose um and the and the it was a very nice compliment actually because Pride takes uh, – she can only carry a maximum of six overnight. She's not rated for overnight – she's not inspected for overnight passengers. So that's – she she does the minimum, which is six. One of these guys comes up to me and he says, I'm a former CEO who runs seminars on how to teach CEOs to be CEOs. And watching you guys do that was one of the more impressive things about like – the combination of collaboration and decision that I've ever seen. <laughs> well, thanks, man. You know, I'm just trying to put a boat back together here. But, you know. <laughs> no, that's um, that's awesome. I, uh, yeah, I've had similar things happen where I, uh, in a previous interview, I was chatting with old shipmate Preston, and we we took him out. We took him. Uh, he, he had a bachelor party on the boat I was on. I was captain. And, uh, and the, the, his, uh, father-in-law was worked for NASA and he's like, Oh my gosh, this is amazing. You guys are so organized. Like NASA has got nothing on you. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's yeah. always, it, yeah, it's, it's awesome. It's awesome when somebody from outside of the maritime world and the industry can look in and be like, wow, this is actually really, really well, well done. Well, honestly, I, you have to take these things. I mean, it was a very nice compliment, but sometimes you have to take these things with a grain of salt, you know, because, you're taking these people and you're taking them so far outside their natural environment. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, uh, honestly, you know, the boat taking the spill, taking the slight knockdown, that was slightly alarming. Um, yeah. You know, our, our cook was making biscuits down below and um, he wound up with like the mixing bowl on his head, like looking like a <laughs> shell shocked British Tommy at the Somme. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and the boom coming off was the most dangerous part. Once we got the boom under control, it was just a matter of, you know, of figuring out how to put it back together. There was no real danger after that point. Yeah. Um, but sometimes when you take someone that far out of their comfort zone, they might have thought that we were about to die any moment the whole time. That's Unclear. true. Yeah, it's hard to – you don't want to read into their <laughs> – I mean, yeah, too exactly. Much. It's, it's, it's windy. It's well, rough. It's kind of deep for, but I mean, it, it was. Um, well, so if you could go back and and do that, you know, that whole thing over again, not not the like to avoid the catastrophe. What what do you think you would have changed? Well, it's a good question. Um, 
like, like one of the things I'm th- I'm thinking of because you said the helmsman kind of they is a he or she or like they, they lost control right or they they got disoriented. It's not even clear that 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 was it. Oh okay. Uh, I you know it, it, it's not clear it's not crystal clear to me. It could have just been one of those things. I mean I'm you know one of the things that I misjudged, which is kind of a fiddly point of seamanship, is that. There was we didn't have a preventer rigged on the boom, mm-hmm. and what you know, what Jan Miles says, and I, I do not have and never have had any reason to doubt him on questions of seamanship. I didn't. I purposely didn't rig the preventer because I was. I knew we were in big seas and rolling and stuff like that, and I thought that if you dip the boom, you could break the boom. Mm-hmm. And he said, like, nah, man, that thing's enormous. It's it's not going to break. The danger is what happened of, of the, you know, the boom coming off the mast. Um, yeah. that, is, that is his opinion on the matter. And he's sailed thousands of miles more on the ship than I have. So yeah. I changed that. You know, the other obvious thing is we're in a race. We're pushing hard. Um, if, you know, I mean, it was blowing 25 to 30 and i believe we were under full main full four full topsail staysail and inner jib Jeez. now there's more stuff now there's more stuff to put up but that's a lot of stuff right? yeah so, <laughs> so obviously obviously shortening sail and taking a knot off of your speed would have been a, i mean on a passage if it was a passage and not a race there's no way i would have been flying that much stuff yeah. Um, so that's another thing. Well, I remember I, I had a captain. He, he described it. He he said you can push one envelope, you know, but he said when you start pushing two or three, especially around three, that's when you like they can all open up on you at once. So it's pretty yeah. awesome that you guys really you were pushing one envelope. You were pushing the boat, you know, in those conditions. And and it's like I'm, I know that boat. You pride has a reputation for being meticulous with the rigging, like like they're very, you know, they're very safety oriented in that regard. Um, and then crew training's top notch. But like if you had a poorly trained crew, and the rigging hadn't really been checked all that well, and you know the equipment wasn't up to snuff, and that's then a, then you you were pushing a, the boat, bam! All three of those open up at once, and you're you're that's when you get yeah. like major major catastrophes happening. That is an extremely good point in that. The other ship that I probably would have pushed that hard if I had a few decent, decent people on board is something like, say, Appledore 5, which is a small, sturdy steel schooner. Yeah. Uh, everything's over-engineered by a thousand percent and, you know, <laughs> and, and it's far less complex, right? I mean, Pride is a big, powerful, complex vessel, but as you point out, we slash I mean they and now I mean I don't work with them anymore but but the organization takes wonderful care of the vessel everything pride gets she needs she gets and when you're putting the crew together for that vessel you're skimming the cream you, you get a stack of resumes foot high and you're skimming the cream off of the top and so it's exactly as you say a couple of those variables are eliminated right the boat's taken care of the crew is awesome so you can push it and if and you know in in a different situation with a different different boat and a different crew no man i'm taking my foot off the gas way sooner you know yeah um. 
I, I just thought of something too, uh, which which is really useful for for anybody, even even uh, you know yachtsmen to know. Um, and that is like I remember on, on the schooners especially, but but anytime you're sailing, you know, let's say you, you got the you, you're you know, on a schooner, let's say you're going almost downwind, right? Like you're you're not quite sailing by the lee, but you're getting close to it. And um, mm-hmm. I I remember I would always I'd always try to tell people like in advance. I'm like, okay, if this happens, like like if if for what you know the wind shifts or you see the sail start to to luff, you know, or, or start to fill the wrong way, what do you do? You know, and they're like, uh-huh. okay, I'll, I'll, you know, so they say wind's coming from starboard. Uh, they go, okay, turn to starboard. And like, all right, visualize that because <laughs> like, when it happens, you don't want to think about it. You just do what you need to do. So, so that's kind of one of the tricks is just simply by default. It's like, oh, you know, like anything that happens, like, okay, the, the boat just took a lurch and now I don't know what the wind's doing. And, or you just get that, that stupid thing where you get the dyslexia and you're like, uh, which way, like that way you don't even think about it. You're just like, when in doubt, I'm going to turn starboard and figure it out. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I mean, it, it's like the old, it's like the thing that turn up wind basically. Yeah. Junior sailors tiller towards trouble, right? You know, it doesn't apply on a boat with a wheel, of course, but, but yeah. Turn away from the boom. Uh, you know, just have some sort of quick little mnemonic in place. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So, so what was your first uh, tall ship that you were on? Appledore Five. Appledore Five. Okay. And then, yeah. then you were on Chieftain for a bit, and and Pride was after Chieftain. Um. Well, in order, uh, it was Appledore Five, which was owned by Baysail in Michigan. But but was operating in Fort Myers Beach, Florida, for the winter. I just was sort of filling in, and then Appledore Four, which is a uh, well, all these Appledore schooners. There are five of them, and I've captained four of them over the years. Um, oh. And um, they're all built by a guy named Herb Smith, who he would basically he was a photographer for National Geographic, and he would build a schooner and go on some adventure and then sell the thing and make a photo book and build another one, you know? So he just, that was his pattern, right? So <laughs> two of these things, they wind up with, uh, an outfit called, uh, Bay sale, which is in based in Bay city, Michigan. And, uh, they do, it's a, it's an education an environmental education. That's what they do like on, on the great lakes. And, one of their boats, Appledore Five, is the smaller one. She's fifty-eight feet overall, and um, or sixty-five spar length, I think. They just couldn't really figure out what to do with her, so they sent her to Florida, and that's where I got on her. Then I then their bread and butter boat was Appledore Four, which is the larger one, eighty-five feet. Both of these are steel, and Appledore Four, which was my second job, I took from. Bay City out to Halifax, Nova Scotia for the Tall, Tall Ship Festival. I got the St. Lawrence Seaway. At that point, they had chartered Appledore 5 to an outfit in Key West uh, just so she could make some money. So I switched back on to Appledore 5, sailed her to Key West. And from Key West, that's when I went to Hawaiian Chieftain. Yeah, I remember that. I remember you telling us stories of Key West and <laughs> just the craziness yeah. there. Yeah, the world's largest open air insane asylum. You know, it was fun. <laughs> um, and um, then I spent a summer on Appledore Two, and actually I was running Appledore Two in Key West. Also, she's a timber schooner, one of the earlier ones. Um, still going strong, actually, very well built. 
Um, then I took a year or so off from running ships. I re-rigged USS Constellation, which uh, is, you know, and a lot of people think she's the 1797 Original Six frigate, but she isn't. She's a 1854 sloop of war. Okay. Uh, about the size and shape of a frigate, you know, she's in Baltimore's Inner Harbor. She's a museum ship. I uh, sort of directed her re-rig. Um, and then I was on Pride. Then I was on the schooner Alabama, which is uh, based in Martha's Vineyard. Then Spirit of Bermuda, which is Bermuda's national ship. And then not much after that, basically COVID. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good old COVID. <laughs> yeah. Well, great. Okay, very neat. Yeah, yeah. I think as we talked about before, COVID, uh, yeah, that hit us all really hard, for sure. Yeah, it's been a challenge, you know. Um, every, I mean, you know, who the hell knows what's going to happen? I mean, they're going to run out of letters in the Greek alphabet sooner or later. I hope. Um, <laughs> But uh, I, I think that, well, basically, I think that I don't know, because because honestly, when this thing happened, coming up on two years ago now, they said, oh, it'll be the next four months is going to suck. Right. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like, holy crap. Right. <laughs> but uh, I, you know, I have things are starting to pick back up the the restrictions are it's not so much that things are shut down it's just things are more difficult to do and you know i have all the shots and needles and as much as i piss and moan about how much i hate wearing masks in public places i still do it because that's what a responsible citizen does in my opinion um i don't have to like it you know it's not required um <laughs> Uh, so we just, I think, I think the, uh, I've numerous friends in the healthcare industry and they think that one of the sort of, it's kind of a tarnished, nasty looking silver lining, but it's still a silver lining of this, of this Omicron variant is that it is not nearly as deadly and it's a lot more contagious, which means those two things mean that a bunch of people will get it and that herd immunity thing that they were talking about early on combined with which with what should be more vaccination but with a lot of vaccination will actually eventually put this thing to bed you know uh, but we'll just have to see yeah yeah it's it seems hopeful for sure yeah well good well so was it COVID then? Because uh, I know for me, you know, you know, I, I got to raise my boys, and um, and and I planted a garden and you know, food forest garden, not just a garden. It's like a it's gonna be a forest. Um, so right. so I was able to have time to do that, which was great. Time to raise my boys uh, and time to set up this podcast. So so it sounds like you also are working on a project, right? You're working on a novel or, or not a novel? I'm sorry, a like historical book. Well, it's a historical novel, really. Um, uh, and, and you know, along before I get into that, um, uh, along those same lines, you know, Dorothy and I, uh, during the pandemic, we got ourselves a cruising sailboat and a Labrador, you know. <laughs> uh, 
and we're both home all the time, it's a perfect time to get a puppy, right? And um, <laughs> you're seeing that a lot, actually. I think uh, around here, at least, all the animal shelters are just cleaned out, you know? Wow. Um, I hope that pans out well for all of those dogs, you know? Just the pandemic alone is, is not a good reason to adopt a dog. You have to want the dog for its entire life, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, we certainly did, and we were just looking for an excuse, you know. Uh, and we got ourselves a nice 31-foot cruising boat that I found propped up in a field in Maine, and we've had a lot of fun with that. But I have been writing on and off. I mean, it, you know, I've been – it's – it's a challenge, but it, but like it's something that I've wanted to pursue for a long time, and uh, and you know this particular project, I feel that finally I've gotten far enough along in one of these things because I've had abortive attempts before to try and write a book, and then work gets in the way, or life gets in the way, or this or that. This one I've gotten far enough along that I simply cannot leave it unfinished. I'm like three quarters done. So it's like, okay, you know, this is just ridiculous. I have to make the time and I have to finish it. The making the time part is now that things are livening back up is becoming the, the question. It is set in, well, it is set in the years, say, what is it, 1803, 1803 or four begins kind of in the the uh the barbary wars which the infant u.s navy uh got involved with the halls of tripoli and all that stuff through and including the war of 1812 in particular our privateering effort in the war of 1812 which was probably well you know while the u.s navy obviously had individual ship-on-ship successes uh the biggest dent that was made by the United States against Great Britain, against the British Empire at sea was privateers, as in private ships of war. Um, just because we just didn't have, I don't know, I think there was probably 40 sh ships in the United States Navy at that time, something like that. Well, yeah, and, and we had no ships of the line. I mean, we, we no, like, none, none I mean, we had at the, all. No third rates, no second rates, no first rates. So, so you're not ever going toe to toe with a hundred gun ship. That ain't ever happening. No, yeah, and and you know, and that was one of the fascinating things about USS Constitution, which is right down the road from me, is uh, Humphreys, uh, the fellow who designed her and her sisters. He specifically designed her to exploit a gap in european navies right because they had frigates you know usually 28 32 36 38 gun frigates right yeah and then they skip like like you know 50 gun ships went out of favor for whatever reason and then they would skip all the way to 74 gun ships which are huge yeah and powerful but slow and so a ship like the Constitution, which is 44, 24 pounders, and, and indeed much more than that. I mean, she had like, you know, carronades and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I want to say it was 54, I think it was 56 guns total, but I, I could yeah. be wrong. I could be wrong. I think yeah. it was around 56, so, so, though. So she's taking on your even one of the bigger British frigates. She's, she's going to pound them into matchwood, and she yeah. could outrun anything that she couldn't outfight. And, and then, so that was the result of. Uh, but still, you know, um, 
Well, and then we had the old the the White Oak from America was famous for just being. I mean, that's why she's called Old Ironsides, right? Like the shots were bouncing off her because that oak was so solid. You know, and, she, and just and the combination of that and her framing was. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah, it, it actually live oak, which is um, you know a North American species. Uh, the U.S. Navy still has live oak trees GPS located all over the country. They belong to the Constitution. Wow. So it's um, li- live oak, not not white oak. It's live oak. Well, the live oak is the, for the frames, and the white oak was for the shell plank. Got it. Uh, okay. Yeah. And um, it was pretty cool. Like uh, I, uh, when I was re-rigging Constellation, I went to the Constitution Museum. Her first name is Margarita. I forget her last name. She's the because there's the museum and, and the Navy work concurrently to take care of Constitution, right? And so Margarita is the, the, um, the museum's chief historian, and she gave me the full tour of the Constitution. Like, we're just crawling around in her guts, and she's and, and Margarita's pointing out all these little things that made the ship stiffer so she could carry the heavy cannon and all this stuff. And we're going down and down and down and down and down. And said, okay, this is this year's reconstruction. This is this year's reconstruction. And we're all the way down in our four peak, like uh, below, just below the waterline. And uh, there's a structural timber called the breast hooks, which is actually not a frightful medieval torture implement, which is what I first thought of when I heard the word. But it's this huge curved live oak timber with this patina of age on it, right? I mean, we're talking picture something of you know, like the width of your living room, and 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 like two and a half feet thick, like this about the shape, roughly the shape of a boomerang, right? <laughs> and uh, she lays her hand on that thing, and she says, "From here down is still 1797." Wow. Yeah, because the salt water preserves it. You know, wow. like anything above the anything above the waterline, fresh water gets at it, and it's more likely to rot. Yeah. Um, so the book is um, well, you know, I'll let you know when I finish the thing. But but um, it's it, it is about um, you know the privateering effort uh, based out of Baltimore. I mean, when I was with Pride, I I, I became well versed in the history of that time and some of the figures, some of the historical figures, and uh, um, who participated in it and the ships and the design of the ships and all of the, all that stuff. So, uh, it's a great deal of the geography and everything, of course, also, and yeah. when, when, where some of the action took place. So where, where did the uh, Barbary pirates fit in? Well, that's earlier. Right. Um, that, that was, I'm sorry. You know, I mean, are these multiple novels you're working on, or is it? Uh... No. Well, my main char- it sort of skips ahead, right? Like my main character, he's he's a um, he's a, like a third lieutenant on the Constitution because the Constitution got sent over there. What happened was one of the unpleasant incidents in the early history of the U.S. Navy is uh, we had a frigate called the Philadelphia, which straight in too close to the city of Tripoli, chasing some um, some Corsair Zebec or something like that. And they put her on the bricks. They ran aground. And and they ran aground within shelling distance of a shoreside fort, which was equally not great. 
And so they tried everything. They tried throwing her guns overboard and everything like that, but they wound up having to surrender. And so we surrender one of our, basically one of our, you know, largest, newest, best ships to these Barbary pirates. And now who the Barbary pirates were, they were nominal members of the Ottoman, Ottoman Empire, but these guys were all pretty independent. And what they kept doing was capturing our mer- merchant ships and enslaving the crews. And they, and in order to – and it's basically extortion. They would say, okay, the only thing that's going to stop us doing this is you guys paying us huge sums of cash, you guys meaning the United States government. And so Thomas Jefferson, who was probably the least warlike president we've ever had, was provoked to the point that he actually sent a U.S. squadron over there to do something about it. And the Philadelphia was part of that squadron. So was the Constitution. Um, yeah. So they captured the Philadelphia. And, and of course, this is all unprecedented for the United States because it's a brand new country. Brand new country. Like brand, brand new. Canadian. Like we didn't have a war. We didn't have the capacity. Because I remember reading some of the debates on uh, – on you know whether or not to build these frigates and is it worth it and and they're just like look we've got a merchant fleet that sails around the world like we need to be able to yeah, defend them, them somehow you that, know, was, we can't... that was largely patient for it yeah um Stephen Decatur which is one of the he's a famous naval figure you know throughout this period through the War of 1812 this was one of the things that he made his name doing was they decided that you know the Philadelphia was too badly damaged to be cut out. In other words, recaptured and and taken out of there. But they weren't going to give the Barbary Corsairs the the opportunity of repairing her and having a ship of that size in their fleet. And so Decatur leads. They, they capture some small little thing. They renamed her Intrepid, but she was just sort of this little merchant latine rig thing. And uh, he led a party of about 50 or 60 guys. They snuck in at night into Tripoli Harbor and set the Philadelphia on fire and hopped back on their little Intrepid and took off. <laughs> and uh, it was, you know, one of the one of the famous early incidents of the of daring in the U.S. Navy. And I I put my guy uh, as a volunteer who goes along with Decatur as a young man. That's one of the first things. I, I would hope so. I mean, I, I, yeah, the accounts I've read and, and anybody that, that was, uh, you know, like, yeah, highly, highly celebrated by the U S Navy and by the United States, uh, you know, for, yeah, dec- they, for well, decades I, after that. Well, you know, Lord Nelson was there, was there at the time and he, I think he called it the most bold and daring act of the age or, or something like that. <laughs> Coming from him. Holy moly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh man, before I forget, just speaking of Lord Nelson and the British Navy, going back to your story about touching the um, that piece of live oak in the USS Constitution. So I got to go to Portsmouth. I've been there a couple times now, but the, I think it was the second time. I, yeah, it must have been the second time I went uh, was with the Viking ship. No, I, I don't remember. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Neither here nor there. Basically, it was the first time. First time I went to Portsmouth. And they had, you know, of course you have to see HMS Victory. I spent like four hours on the boat just running up and down it all over the place. I am planning on going in the spring, and that is exactly what I'm going to do. Oh, it yeah. is it is the ultimate pilgrimage. It is the Mecca for anybody who's into nautical history, in my opinion. Um, but, yeah, so so I spent all my time there, and I did a bunch of other things. Didn't have time to see the HMS Warrior, which is also excellent. So I had to pick one thing. And I look on the, the map, and, you know, and they had – 
the victory sale. And I was like, what's that? That sounds stupid. Like in my, in my imagination, I'm picturing like this virtual reality. Like you sail the HMS history and shoot like little cannons. And it's really lame. That's what I pictured. So I walk up the steps and, and I'm it's just me and there's this room and it's kind of dark and they start playing the video, you know, and I see the sale, like an actual sale in front of me. And they start playing this video and it's, you know, taking some clips from Master Commander, but but talking about you know, every, every England expects every man to do his duty and all this stuff. And it just gives us this, you know, nice context and the epic music. And then they, they light up the sale and say, you know, this is the world's largest. I, I forget how they put it, like the largest woven, you know, historical artifact in the world or something like that. And you're only seeing about, I think, two thirds of it. So you're not even seeing the entirety of this thing. It's massive. It takes up the entire, this giant, giant room. And you can see the cannonball shots and the musket holes. And you can see like just the stitches, like just the deep, oh my God, it's incredible. And I just start crying. I like, I started just, I lost, I lost it. I started crying. I just, I never knew it existed. I couldn't believe I was looking at this piece of history, you know, that I, this battle that I've read numerous times. And the, I remember these, these other, you know, the four topsail, it is the four topsails HMS victory from the battle of Trafalgar. Like it just right. blew my mind. I had no idea. And then I remember this couple comes up and like, they look at it like, what's this? This is stupid. And just walk on down. I'm like, I just want to scream at them like you ignorant <laughs> morons. <laughs> like, but well, it, you're talking to you're talking to a guy who, when he was a little kid, I mean, we're talking six and seven years old. My grandmother would save yellow margarine tubs, right? She had stacks and stacks of those yellow margarine tubs, and I made ships of the line <laughs> out of yellow margarine tubs and toothpicks and paper bags for sales, right? So oh, they, perfect. One had three, you know, three masts and, and the whole works. And I recreated the Battle of Trafalgar and the <laughs> Battle of the Nile on the kitchen floor. It was one of the things that I did. So, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Sounds like something I have to go see also. Darn it. I don't eat margarine. I don't eat margarine. I'll have to come with something else. That, that'd be perfect for my boys. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny yeah i remember as a kid i'd, I'd play with uh, army soldiers you know it was my big thing and i'd have just i mean the strategy and and all this and, and it was it was crazy um and i remember just having epic battles where like this line would come and they get you know they'd shoot and a few people would die and then you know this they go backwards and forwards and then you'd have flanking maneuvers and like in hindsight it was actually pretty complex like for i think for yeah. being a really little kid um, there are people there are people who and you know these people get way into it right and we're talking about their their it's the same kind of thing except they're doing naval battles and and you know they have they have the wind direction set and they have like the point of sail that any given ship can go in a given amount of time and there's there's rolls of dice for factors but they're they're playing on essentially a gymnasium floor and they're using incredibly detailed models of these ships you know like victory and bucentaur and temeraire and and you know bellerophon all of them, like you know done in exquisite detail right it's it god i mean i don't even know how you get in to see one of those things <laughs> I, that's, that's my first question is like how okay how do i get there and yeah. uh, when's the next one <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow 
Yeah, we'll have, to, we'll have to figure that out. We'll put that in the um, the show notes because uh, yeah. I'm sure there there are gonna be some hardcore people that. Oh man, what what a what a perfect world! It would be a perfect world if you could have an event like that that's just super geeky, super historical, like really awesome, and you have like an audience, you know, <laughs> like people are like yeah, <laughs> cheering it on. <laughs> oh my gosh, I kind of feel I feel like that's the future of sports. <laughs> well, no, no, no. I'm serious. Like, not, not in that it'd be a warehouse or whatever, because because that is relatively slow. You'd have to have everybody knowing the rules. But like something, I, if if virtual reality really goes the way it seems to be going, like imagine going re reenacting those naval battles, you know, in virtual reality, where where audience members could watch it and look like, like it, it'd be that'd be that that'd be a neat way to celebrate history. Yeah, because. Yeah, because it's uh, you know it's one thing to to dress up in in, in a uniform with a bunch of other people, which individuals can do that, but no individual can afford to build the HMS Victory again. Like no, <laughs> you know that ain't no. happening. Maybe maybe a few could, you know, like the the Elon Musk's and the oh, Jeff Bezos. Well, yeah, you compare it to. I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm pulling a number right out of my behind here, but you could probably build. HMS Victory, all up, cannons, pull works. I mean, it can't be more than a hundred million dollars. And they spend, they spend, this guy spent a hundred million dollars on the America's Cup. You know, I mean, there's people out there who waste money on, on, on sailboats. Oh, they waste that's true. So it's just a matter of finding the right person. You know? Yeah, I, I look at, I, I know, and just getting, yeah, just getting people like that on board, you know, like, because, because what the cool thing now is, you know, they all want their own space. Company. It's it's fascinating to watch people, regardless of how much money they have or how where they're from. Like like everybody kind of, it's always the keeping up with the Joneses a little bit, or or just like, ooh, I see that that looks neat. Me too, right? And so like this yeah. whole like, okay, so you have several billion dollars now. You're getting involved with space. Not that all billionaires are doing that. They're obviously not. But there's like three. Yeah. There's three. Okay. So so that's a but still, like I just want to get a billionaire, one billionaire that's totally into LARPing. You know, like like and, <laughs> and celebrating medieval history and celebrating that and like, okay, and yeah. now we have a new medieval town somewhere in a non earthquake zone that mm -hmm. people could come and dress up only you know, only you only go if you dress up in costume and like some billionaires just made like this town and castle and what fun that would be, you know, creating stories. Right. And then the other one would be like uh, I would love to see a 74 gunship in the world again. I think yeah. that would be really, really well, neat. Last one only went to the bottom right after World War II. Oh, no. Don't tell me that. That's horrific. I, I... Yeah, it was the implacable. Uh, they, oh. they, uh, they, I mean, they had these things still. There was a bunch of them in World War One. They were just lying around still. Yeah. You know, the British had tons of these things. The implacable was captured at the Battle of Trafalgar. She was called something else. I can't remember what she was called, but it was a very French revolutionary kind of name, and they didn't like that, so they renamed her Implacable. Um, and she, she was, you know, they same fate that a lot of these things had. They, they used her as a school ship for a while, then they turned her into a floating barracks, and then a floating warehouse, and and she was still there, like in 1948, but she was just totally rotting to pieces. Yeah. And it was... Post World War II Britain, nobody had any money for anything, and so they they decided to scuttle her. Um, Damn. Damn. I, yeah, I wish, I wish. I mean, really, the only government that that could have done anything would, would have been ours, uh, the United States. I, yeah, and and oh. uh, you know, as, yeah, as evident fact that we. I mean, 
USS Constitution, they're very careful with her, but they could, they can and do sail her. I mean, not far and not often, but, you know, especially since her last reconstruction, uh, when they put, put back in some of her structural timbers, which had been taken out, mm-hmm. uh, she's now stiff enough again to sail, but they, they don't want to take her anywhere. It's like, you know, with this, this 220 something year old icon, right? <laughs> that, like, okay, yeah, sorry, mate. We dumped her over in a line squall and she's at the bottom of Nantucket Sound. It's like, I don't think so. You know? Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. <laughs> Though it is, it is incredible seeing the pictures of her, um, you know, doing like the West Coast tour pictures. I mean, actual yeah. pictures back in the day. Um, yeah. I think that was early, early 1900s, if I remember correctly. Uh, they say the, so the United States Navy prides itself in saying the USS Constitution is the oldest ship, a uh, commissioned vessel afloat. Obviously, yes. HMS Victory is also commissioned. Victory is still in commission, also and older. <laughs> but and old, yeah, I mean, Victory was. I shit, she was laid down in like seventeen sixty three or something like that. Something um, like that, definitely seventeen sixties. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty funny, pretty neat. Oh, that's that's wonderful. Well, I you know I hope I hope the novel goes well, and I, I hope it inspires people to to learn more about that history. You know, I've been sailing around the San Juans this this last summer. I was doing a whale watching boat and learned, you know, learned all about the the place names and stuff. And it turns out the a lot of the place names in the San Juan Islands were were from the American uh, Wilkes expedition. That was the expedition that explored it, or not explored it, but uh, surveyed it and completed Vancouver survey essentially. But but he yeah. he he changed a lot of the names. A lot of the names to commemorate War of eighteen twelve and you know like yeah. Bar- Barbary pirate days uh, of the U.S. Navy. So it's kind of neat. interesting. Interesting note about Wilkes is um, uh, they called him the Stormy Petrel apparently because he was just a complete bastard. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, so he had that reputation from the. They called it the XX, the exploratory expedition, right? And they went all over the place. I mean, I think he went, he set the record for sailing the furthest south for a while. I don't, I don't think it was broken until probably Endurance, which didn't wind up coming back. The other thing that Wilkes did a little later in life is he almost lost us the Civil War because uh, he was the guy who was in command of the ship that boarded a British vessel and seized a couple of Confederate diplomats off of it. Um, oh. It was in the Bahamas or something like that. And, you know, the British Empire at that time did not take kindly to that sort of thing. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I mean, there was an uproar, like, like, it's like the, that very British, like, you did what? That, that, that kind of thing. And, and it sort of combined with a couple of the early Confederate battlefield victories to the point where, you know, there was, I don't really know how close it came, but, but it got to the level where the prime minister was talking about it with his cabinet about like, okay, what are we going to do to teach the union a lesson here? You know? Right. Um, You you know, and um, it it got smoothed over one way or another, but it was a pretty big deal at the time. Um, wow. Yeah, I'd be very curious to to read those uh, to read those discussions. That'd be neat. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, I mean, you know, morally, Britain, Britain had outlawed slavery for decades and decades and decades. I mean, and, like, and I, 
if, if I'm, I mean, I read this book years ago, but if I'm remembering correctly, like that's what won out. Yeah. It was like, oh, well, no, we still can't, you know, we still can't support a country that, you know, has slavery written into their constitution, a nascent country, not even a country, but a movement that, that has slavery written into their constitution. So that's the end of that discussion, you know? Um, yeah. And you think about the amount of money and the lives sacrificed to enforce the the international slave ban like yeah yeah i mean it's like oh we'll just throw that all out the window not not that not you know i I don't know it would have been a step back for sure morally for sure always so plastic when it comes to this stuff but but the british were the ones and not to say that the british empire was always a global force for good necessarily but right were the ones among european nations who took the lead on on getting rid of slavery we have to give them that anyway yeah good old history i always tell folks it gets pretty nuanced pretty quickly if you read enough yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's it's crazy the i don't know i wish people read more history i feel like they would they would just kind of take things in stride a little better and not not be suckered by some of the silliness that's out there right now well i think that um you know i think one of the things there is not just history, you know, like just the, and you could get it from history, but you could also get it from sociology and anthropology and primatology and all this stuff is the repetitions of pattern, right? If you see the same thing over and over and over again, then why on earth are you surprised by it? Yeah. But there have been demagogues in politics since Gaius Gracchus in friggin' 400 BC, you know? So why are these guys surprising? These people who like get up and jump up and down and and appeal to the lowest common denominator. Why is that surprising? Why is anyone surprised by it? Because they don't know what a demagogue is. That's why, you know. <laughs> and and like and when you look at racism, you look at what chimpanzees do. Like just their patterns of behavior. They 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 feel the need to exclude someone from the group before they kill them chimpanzees are vicious creatures you know they're they're like the bonobos are the ones that look just like them and and are actually very nice but um it's the same it's it can be directly applied to human behavior you know and it's like why is that surprising this has been going on for millions of years it's like so the question is how do we break the patterns it's not that the it's not being surprised that like, oh my goodness, none of this is new. The question is, how do we make it ancient history, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, you can't you can't if people don't even recognize the pattern already is happening again. You know, like, like, like it's, yeah, it's, it's frustrating to me. But I don't know. I don't know how to get, it's interesting times we're going through. <laughs> yeah, go like, you know. I don't know. I mean, I've, I've, I've often, uh, my girlfriend and I, we, uh, we have a vision of just going somewhere coastal where land is still cheap. Um, on this, on this side of the country, that either means way northeast Maine or Nova Scotia or Newfoundland or something. And just getting a small cottage that's like, that's like easy to heat and, <laughs> and, and, and having goats and naming them after British battleships. You know? 
<laughs> Isn't Dreadnought the best name for a goat that you've ever heard in your life? I like it. I like it a lot. Dreadnought, implacable, and furious, and revenge, and, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The British had, the British had, had uh, battleship names and ship of the line names on lockdown, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're pretty amazing. Well, I don't know. Did, did you want to talk a little bit about uh, about our time on Chieftain? I mean, I'm trying to uh, trying to remember back to all that. I definitely kept a good journal, but uh, haven't re- reviewed it in a while. I do remember. Well, I do remember our. Um, we had to give. Oh, what was it? it? It was like oh evaluations. That's right. And then we decided <laughs> to give one for Palio. A lot when you and like you know we 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 like lit candles and had robes on and well, stuff. Well, and... The problem was there was nothing to be said. <laughs> I mean, here you have this yeah. handsome... Not that handsome should be in the evaluation, but but damn it. like He was a good-looking guy with a great accent, super funny, super pleasant, really smart, really easygoing, learned quickly. Like, there was nothing negative. <laughs> right. And There's so... Curious to be said. <laughs> yeah, and so I knew Palio was kind of, you know, that, that he's a... You know, I, I knew he would appreciate it, and so yeah, like so we lit candles, had hoods on, you know, black, you know, made the aft cabin really dark, turned on the red lights, and then he comes down for his quote unquote evaluation, and we're like, Palio, <laughs> this is your evaluation, and he just without missing a beat, he like, he like, what? Oh, he's like, oh, he takes a knee, and he says, who will you have me assassinate tonight? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was great. So I did enjoy doing the uh, the battle sales. Those were fun. Weren't they great? That's one thing yeah. where you talked about the East West Coast difference, uh, and I'm not sure. Uh, one of the differences was I I I, I dislike, and you got to be careful because there are different boats, there are different organizations. Like you don't want to generalize, uh, but one yeah. of the things was this kind of looking down on the battle sales that we did at Grays Harbor that I'd hear you know sometimes from the East Coasters. And I just would tell him, like, look, you you don't understand. You you just don't. Like, it's we're, we're doing so many sail maneuvers in close quarters. You know, I always would tell you, like, we did more sail maneuvers in one of those battle sails than most boats do in a week. And it's exactly. Like, and I, honestly, I mean, for me, it was like it. The closest comparison I could draw to it is coming from a racing background as a pre-start in a match race. Hmm. You know, and. Except much more complicated because the boat has nine sails, you know. <laughs> uh, and we kept score and everything. I mean, it was. I mean, tell me that isn't fun. Taking two square rig sailing ships and like duking it out at really close quarters and and all that stuff. I mean, I, I really enjoyed that. <laughs> no, it was it was great, and it would get intense sometimes. I remember I was just like, wow, this is a. Uh... Yeah, I remember one pastor saying, this is kind of intense, because, <laughs> like, you know, if one person really, you know, one one person really screws up the braces or whatever, yeah, you could just, now, now I can't maneuver my boat anymore, or I've got to, you know, the whole thing's yeah. thrown off, and you got to, you know, back everything, but, but you got really, that was one thing about those bow sails, you got really, really good, because uh, mistakes would happen, and, and crew members would screw up, and even on occasion, the captain would screw up, and, and you got really good at fixing those problems and just maneuvering those boats. It was, fly, it was terrific. Yeah. yeah. Like real fast. And, uh, boy, being a deck, I remember being a deckhand on battle sails. The first, it took a long time before I knew what was going on. Like, I was just like, what? <laughs> you know, it's so chaotic when you're, when you're first doing it. But yeah, a lot of fun. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, and well, yeah, I mean, you know, there was, I, I think you had left the ship by this point. We were in um, Crescent City and uh, we went out and it breezed up suddenly and, you know, got caught with a little too much canvas up and Chieftain broke one of her main topmast running backstays. Oh, wow. Which looks like swinging around in the waist. And so I'm in the position of having to crash tack an over canvassed 105 foot square rigger in, in, in 20 not, something knots of wind because otherwise the top mast is going to come down and, and like land in the waist, you know. And uh, crew did great. I mean, you know, I just put the ship up into the wind and we just clued up all standing and, you know. And the other thing we did very, very well, I think you were on board for this, is when the Coasties came on and they had us do a man overboard. And I think we circled back and recovered the man overboard in, I think it was like, a, it was 90 seconds. Something like. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. I just remember them being very impressed, you know, and, and honestly, just doing all the, doing all that sail handling and those battle sails, that's, that's what that does. You know, it's, it's yep. just, you know, just <laughs> having a fluid understanding of how the rig works and what needs to be done. And people are running to, towards the, the thing that needs to be done before you ask them to do it and things like that. Oh, so, so we did, we did that. See, I don't remember that rescue. We did, I, I do vaguely remember we did a really quick one, but it was under sail. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, yeah, the East Coast, West Coast. Like, eh, I don't know. Some, some of the best uh, because some of those types of things. I've seen it on both coasts, so I, I, I think a lot depends on who's in charge. I think a lot depends on the program. Yeah, I might be overstating the whole the whole coastal difference thing. I, I don't know. Let's just take the coasts out of it, right? And yeah, and just say that that like. I have seen organizations that are just very sort of utilitarian and focused on purely on just operations and seamanship and stuff like that. And then ones that sort of, how shall I put it, veer a little bit more towards performance art. <laughs> yeah, and I, I feel like Grace Harbor was was a lot – I mean, they, they've it was a lot more like that before – you know, before my time, I, I think, yeah. from the sounds of it. And that certainly we had some that. of that left over. I mean, I, I remember when we would uh, – there, there were little theatrics. Like, like for example, I, I remember we'd, you'd be unfurling the um, – or ungasketing one of the topsails. And you had to say, oh, four topsail away. And it, it, it wasn't necessary to do that on the – you know, their topsails were relatively small. And it wasn't until I got to the, the U.S. Brig Niagara when – when, when it's like you had a person in charge of ungasking the sail and they had to warn the people down on deck, they're like, you know, they had to ask permission to let that sail go because if it flopped down and, and a gust hit or something hit it, you could actually knock a person off of the platform below it. You know, that's how big those sails were. You could actually injure people yeah. and kill them even. And yeah, so and it's the like. Prize, the prize was pretty big and that certainly was part of the communication process is, is you know, you, you know, like. You know the the order was let fall and and it was not let fall until the order was received. You know that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so, but but the way I could kind of see how that you know probably trickled its way to Lady Washington, but then it's like 
there it became theatrical where it's like well nobody's going to get hurt you know <laughs> like right. like the sales are too small for that and it's just like and and you're not even asking permission you're just saying man four top away and it's like well okay <laughs> i mean they can see that you know so yeah. i don't know it, it seemed a little theatrical to me but at the you know at the same time there's something to be said for passengers enjoy that kind of stuff too so it's it's hard it's hard to say yeah, it's it's a fine line. It's a fine line. Some boats run for sure. Well, and and honestly, um, it, you know, you you do want to when you're introducing people to this stuff, you do want to give them an authentic experience. I mean, sometimes I've been asked more than once, and you know, this is all in Key West where you get all the really good questions, right? Like because there's a lot of by the time you even get on the boat, a lot of people are are sort of pretty far along, (laughs) (laughs) as it were. Uh, I've been asked more than once if the steering wheel actually steers the boat. Oh, yeah. People people are exposed to so much fake stuff, like the Disney Jungle Queen and stuff, that they they get on a real honest-to-goodness. Like Apple Door 2 has sailed around the world. I mean, it's a real honest-to-goodness ocean-going schooner, you know. And and they think it's like on a track on the bottom or something. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> well, I've had I've had the same same question asked, and uh, they say there are no stupid questions. That uh, I don't know. I think that would count. But <laughs> the best the best stupid question I've ever heard of, ever, was um, it was on the. So I wasn't there for it, unfortunately. So this is like a secondhand story. But the the, the gal who she she was a a curator for the Viking Ship Museum in Roskilde. Denmark. Yeah. Yeah. And this, uh, this, and I will, I will leave the uh, nationality of these two young ladies to your imagination. But uh, this one girl says, so are there any Vikings alive today? And before the curator could answer the, the girl's friend answers for her and says, duh, they're all on reservations. Oh my God. Yeah. That's, <laughs> wow. That's pretty good. I mean, I've been asked, you know, this is steering real real. Uh, I've been asked, how many sunset sales do you do per day? That's a good one. Oh, wow, um, yeah. <laughs> I've been asked in Key West, does the water go all the way around the island? That was, mm-hmm. that was not a really good one. So but what are... Vikings uh, on that was... That uh, what was that? Uh, Vikings on reservations. That, I, think, I think you win. <laughs> I've never heard of anything so <laughs> dumb in all my life. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah. The, the, so tell me, I, I want to know, like, like Key West. I mean, you got some crazy stories. Like, like what's just the the wildest sail you ever went on, or just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe the passenger just did that kind of thing. I got a couple of, I got a couple of pretty good ones. Um, like, like I remember going on a, a booze cruise on Schooner Seaward out of Sausalito, yeah. and at yeah. the end of it, we cleaned up. You know, there was mess everywhere. There was wine. And I just remember there was wine that I couldn't even reach. Like I had to climb. I had to climb up the mast to, to get the <laughs> wine. Which is like, how? Like, like, how does that even happen? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I have so many of these. I just have to distill it down or I could just go on for too long. But, but let's see. <laughs> there was, uh, well, we took out a photo shoot for a, like a, you know, some clothing catalog or other. It was a recognizable brand. I don't remember the brand, but you'd recognize it if you heard it. And that's all I can recall. (laughs) 
So both male and female models, and because of the light, photographers are, are very addicted to the right quality of light. So I had to go out at dawn, and and we go out, and there's 15 models on on the on the ship, and they all threw up. Oh no! <laughs> Every last one of them, and so it was, you know, I mean, they're literally like, you know, the the photo shoot is going on, and they're throwing up, <laughs> and they they would like throw up, and then go into like you know like wipe their mouth a little bit, and then go into like model. Pose like gazing off into the middle distance. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, that took a lot of hosing off after that one. I, uh, I, I remember thinking, it's like, okay, is this seasickness or is just just a regular morning model thing? You know? <laughs> uh, it was unclear to me. Oh, <laughs> one of these days, I will. One of these times, I will get through an entire interview without talking about vomit and puking. But it, yeah, it hasn't happened know. since. <laughs> Not this time. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's cool. This other, well, this didn't doesn't directly involve Paul Ships, but it's a great story. There's a lot of people who come across from Cuba, uh, uh, you know, on rafts, on on whatever, um, to try to get to the United States because they don't care for Castro or Castro's, you know, brother or whatever. And the rule is. It's called the wet foot, dry foot rule. And what that means is if they get intercepted in the Straits of Florida, they have to go back. But if they land on U.S. soil, they get asylum. Mm -hmm. uh, God knows why it's that way, but that's the way as one of those things, right? So there's this beach called Higgs Beach in Key West. And uh, these guys came across the Florida Straits 90 miles from the vicinity of Havana to Higgs Beach in a pickup truck. <laughs> they had like big monster, they put like big monster truck tires on it so it would float. They welded the bed shut. They put an outboard motor on the back and they drove that sucker across the Florida Straits. <laughs> wow. And they made it. And honestly, I don't know, but what I like to think is that they were seen and the Coast Guard said, you know what, guys? You're exactly who we want. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but that's what I like to think. <laughs> yeah, let's. I like that story. Let's go say it's yeah. true. <laughs> that's awesome. And yeah, I, remember... was, I was. I was coming back from the bars, um, and um, was trying to get to where I was sleeping, which was Apple Bar Five, and. There was an armed standoff with some lunatic with an automatic weapon who was living in a houseboat a few slips down from me. Couldn't get to my couldn't get to my ship, so I had to go sleep on Hindu. Um, lots of them. Um. <laughs> All right, Jordan. Well, um, thank you. Thank you so much well, for. I hope I've given you some usable stuff. Oh, I think so. I think so. Yeah, especially. I mean, I, I love the history and and the stories, and I, I feel like uh, the racing. Yeah, it's it's. I, I feel like this podcast. I'm trying to. I, I don't know yet what it's ultimately going to become, but but right now the you know the themes are it, 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 like a, a lot of people seem to like kind of the insider knowledge, the sort sort of the the maritime knowledge, but yeah. but I, I feel like the storytelling is a part of it. You know, just like it, it, hearing the stories, it helps kind of solidify it in people's minds. And so, 
you know, and then and then people, some people, I hope, are just entertained by the jokes, and and maybe they're like, man, I'm never going out to sea, or holy, that sounds awesome, I totally want to do it. <laughs> and uh, yeah. but regardless, you know, it's it's uh, we read about stuff that we would never do all the time. So my right. hope and, and listen to things. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see where where it goes. But I hope people enjoy these stories. Yeah, I hope so too. Good luck with it. And uh, I'll be listening. <laughs> awesome. All right, Jordan. Well, thank you very much. Folks, you know how to support me. It's there in the show notes. I uh, really appreciate you listening. Uh, thank you, Jordan, for taking the time to, to oh, chat yeah, with me. Uh, what's the, do you have a title for your book yet? The working title is Grace, and that's related to the first paragraph, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I hope wish you all the best of luck with uh, with your endeavors there. And uh, you. with your cruising and, and your your wife, congratulations. And yeah. Thank you. And I uh, hope you have a, a happy – I hope we get over this COVID thing real soon and, and we can all go back to having a, a relatively yeah, the, normal life. I, I'm that the uh, light at the end of the tunnel is an oncoming train. But, you know, like, <laughs> I, like I said, there's only so many Greek letters. So <laughs> there you go. All right, uh, folks. It was real nice talking to you, and good luck with this. You too. Thanks. Thanks so much. All right, folks. Take care. Fair winds and a falling sea. All right. Thank you, Jordan. Talk to you later. Bye.